Hi, everyone. My name is Jean McKenna. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Jean. Because of God's grace, your fellowship and direct sponsorship, I've been sober since sometime in May of 1982. And um, I'll explain that sometime in May here in a few moments. But I want to uh, take care of some housekeeping so I don't forget. I want to thank uh, Becky and the committee for inviting me to come down and share with you. Uh, I'm, I feel so honored to be on a list with people who have the gift to share the message from the podium. It is truly a gift. Not all of us have that particular gift. Some of us have the gift of making coffee just right at meetings, you know. Some of us have that gift of sponsoring or setting up the meeting or um, always being there to clean up. We each have special gifts, and it is truly a gift to be able to communicate a uh, message to us from the podium. And I've never... Uh, exactly. Can you hear my voice vibrating? I've never thought of myself as having that particular gift, so anytime I'm asked to share, I'm overwhelmed, and especially at a conference with such um, wonderful uh, speakers that you'll have the rest of the weekend. Now that I've brown-nosed them enough, maybe they'll they'll be kind to me when they get up here at the podium. You know, um, I'm a local speaker, uh, an absolutely local speaker. And my home group always teases me because I love to talk. When I get going, it's hard to shut me off. My home group, um, on Tuesday night, we have three 15-minute speakers, and they talk about either a step or a, ta- or a tradition. And so we have a little timer that goes off in 15 minutes. And, and when I get real close, I turn it off before it beeps. <laughs> I have to be honest up here because they do see me do that once in a while. Uh, so, Gary, if I start to really go over 90 minutes, come up and slap me. <laughs> he likes that. Uh, Gary's one of my friends, too. It's so nice to be places where you know people. And I was here a couple of years ago, and I do see some familiar faces. And as Becky told you, we uh, know, each, know each other from uh, uh, Omaha, where uh, Becky sobered up, and uh, I finally became sane. And Carol, who moved over from uh, Cincinnati. So, there, you know, it's nice to go places and, and see people, uh, no matter where you are in the country. And I've been fortunate enough, because of Alcoholics Anonymous, to travel. Okay, I think I've rambled enough. I might as well share with you uh, a few things about me so you can understand why Becky, uh, for some reason, wanted me to share with you. Uh, I'm uh, born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, and come from an, uh, an Irish Catholic family. And, uh, you know, without the uh, Irish Catholics, uh, we probably wouldn't have half the meetings we do. Um, but growing up in Brooklyn was no different than growing up in any other part of the country, I'm sure, except that we just had a, a larger diversity, di- diversified group of people in a small area. I could go um, either side of my little two-block neighborhood and be in an entirely different world, the Italian world, the Jewish world. You know, it, it, I was primarily in an Irish neighborhood, excuse me, an Irish neighborhood, and if I wanted to get lost, all I had to do was go two blocks, and I could be lost forever. But um, in that little neighborhood, there were, like any other uh, place around the country, groups of kids that were either, you know, the good kids or the jocks or uh, the troublemakers. 
And I bet you can't guess where I levitated towards. Of course, uh, I called them the exciting kids. My mother called them hoods. You know, we had our collars up, and I still like to wear my collar up uh, whenever I can. And uh, I learned how to strut. I learned how to intimidate people that frightened me. Um, I also learned how to drive. Uh, I would borrow cars, and I'd go out and learn how to drive. I say borrowed because I try to put them back in the same general vicinity I borrowed them from. <clears throat> I, uh, I learned how to be um, quick on my feet, quick thinking on my feet, and be able to uh, tell you whatever story I thought you needed to know in order to get me what it was that I wanted. I learned a lot about um, how to be part of the world, be part of society. I also learned quickly how to uh, to steal and feel okay with it. That's what I told myself. I still, it, it, I deserve to have that. It was too much money. I deserve to have it. Or the thrill of taking something and not getting caught was a high. But I also learned how to drink. And um, because I, of my family background, my grandmother always gave us a little bit of blackberry brandy on a teaspoon to calm us down you know, when we were babies growing up. So I always had alcohol. When the family got together, uh, we'd have watered-down um, highballs at uh, the holiday. So I've had alcohol all of my life. But when I was 15 and really uh, wanted to be like everybody else, I had to do what everybody else was doing. And this particular uh, gang that I was um, running with uh, once a month had a big party. And you brought a bottle with you. Well, I immediately went to my folks' liquor cabinet because everybody knows, you know, if you're a sophisticated family, you have a liquor cabinet. might be in a crate, you know, underneath the sink, but <laughs> you had a liquor cabinet. And my folks had three bottles of Southern Comfort. And I took one of those bottles. I had never tasted Southern Comfort before. I see some heads nodding and some smiles. It... <clears throat> I brought it with me. Now, the idea is to take the bottle and pass it around. We would all share what we brought. Uh, nowadays, and I guess uh, in the uh, 70s and 80s, they poured everything in one big vat. We didn't do that. This is in the uh, in the 50s. And we would just take a slug and pass it around, mix it inside of us. Well, I took one sip, one big sip of that bottle. And for those of you that have not had Southern Comfort, it's very fruity tasting, and it's very warm, and it just slides right down, and then it just kind of expands. Ooh, I got goosebumps. Do you feel that? Do you feel that? I mean, you just think about it. It just, it is just a wonderful, wonderful experience. Um, and I thought, I am not sharing this bottle. And I didn't. I didn't share that bottle with anyone. But that night, I experienced a lot of firsts. I had my first hickey. <laughs> I had my uh, my first hangover, um, my first blackout. But uh, it was exciting because I anything negative did not outweigh the way I felt when I was drinking that. But because I got so sick. I decided I would not drink Southern Comfort ever again. I would try some of the other things that everybody else had that uh, they said they got the same feeling from. 
And that's the way I drank for the rest of my life. If it gave me that same feeling of warmth and comfort, uh, I drank it. Now, I'm a not one of those progressive falling down drunk type of uh, alcoholic. I'm a controlling alcoholic. I have tried to control everything in my life, my entire life, including my alcohol. When um, I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, um, I was trying very hard to convince them that I didn't drink the way my ex-husbands drank and the way everybody else drank and that I didn't really belong here because I could drink two or three drinks and put it down. Two or three drinks and walk away from it. Now, I know most of you are saying, well, how can she be an alcoholic if she can do that? Well, when you get honest and really look at your drinking pattern, like it took me a couple years to do, my two or three drinks were iced tea glasses with two or three ice cubes full of scotch. And I would do two or three drinks two or three times a day. And when my sponsor made me measure it out one day, and it was almost a quart of scotch a day. And that's the way I drank the last ten years of my drinking. When I when I uh, was 16, I ran away from home because home was uh, a, a little difficult. I come from a uh, a family who has a uh, had a falling down drunk for a father, and he and I, of course, didn't get along. And and um, uh, I'm the oldest of five, and my mother always expected me to do something like babysit or cook or clean, and that wasn't for me. So I ran away, but um, I didn't go too far. And I was determined to get out, uh, get graduate, and become somebody. It was important for me to become somebody because I never felt like I was anybody. The only time I felt like I could interact with you is if I had a drink in my hand. That gave me that comfort, that, that secure feeling that I never had unless I had a drink in me. Now, prior to um, leaving uh, in the fifth, my 15th year, that was also the first year that I tried suicide. I have a long history of trying suicide. And it was just before I started drinking. Um, I knew I didn't fit anywhere. And suicide was the answer. But all of my suicide attempts were the same same scenario. I would take whatever it was that I was going to take or cut whatever it was I was going to cut. And then I'd call somebody to say goodbye. <laughs> You know, I didn't want to leave permanently. I just wanted it, just wanted to go away for a while, just until um, the pain was done, until I could get to the other side. What's amazing to me right at the moment is I'm not following the normal route that I follow when I give a talk at all. I don't know where half of this stuff is coming from, but who knows? It's just coming. Anyway, um, I met a, a fella, and we started dating, and um, I don't know about the way you grew up, but uh, the kids I ran with all proposed the same way. My friend Ken Devaney says, because we come from the same neighborhood, uh, the guys would say, you're what? Um, and that was my first marriage, you know. That lasted maybe a year and a half, maybe a year and a half. Uh, I couldn't do anything right. Uh, in that marriage as far as he was concerned and as far as I was concerned uh, he couldn't do anything right and we brought out the absolute worst in each other and it became a very violent uh, destructive marriage 
And I just knew beyond a shadow of a doubt uh, I wasn't going to live that way the rest of my life. I wanted that white picket fence. I wanted maturity. And, you know, I'm uh, not even 19 years old, and I wanted everything that I imagined y'all had. And it wasn't uh, available to me, not in that type of relationship. Moved up to uh, New England and uh, immediately started a whole new life. Now, I don't know what you're like when you make a geographic, but I try to bury whatever it was that I came from and start fresh. So um, because I barely made it out of school and the only background I had was as a waitress, I immediately went to look for something that would pay me a little bit more and give me a little bit more sophistication. So I made up a, a resume and uh, got a job with the hotels. I said I had a whole bunch of hotel experience and, and uh, accounting experience, so I became an auditor at a hotel. I had no clue. I mean, I'm a fast learner. Aren't we fast learners? Uh, you know, I just would make something up, watch you, and then do it. Uh, I've always been able to do that most of my life. And, and in Connecticut, they had um, uh, a, a blue law on the books that you had, women could not sit at the bar. Uh, at all. It didn't matter how old you were, but you could not sit at the bar. When that changed in um, 1962, at midnight, October, I believe, I was at the bar. I was the first woman to sit at the bar in that bar. And it was the Holiday Inn in Rotten Grotten, Connecticut. You know, that was important to me. And I used to brag about that. It, that's, you know, the way my thinking. It made me important. It made me feel like I was somebody. I also met my second husband there. He was a sailor. And uh, I had a lot of distaste for sailors. My father was a sailor, and I swore I would never have anything to do with them. Um, he was also a uh, very heavy drinker. And this is the way he asked me to marry him. He was practically comatose on the couch, laying flat with a death grip on my hand, and said, I won't let you go until you promise to marry me. I said, yes, and he passed out. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, where where is my brain? Uh, you know, he was exciting. That's all I knew is he was exciting. And the thought of maybe traveling someplace else to go start all over again, um, Somebody to help me pay for the bills, you know, take care of the kid, just whatever it took. Well, our life uh, from then on uh, really got totally, totally bizarre. And, yeah, we did move around quite a bit. The Navy, like a lot of military, um, will provide you with whatever it is that you ask them for. And I have a lot of nervous problems. Nerve problems. And so uh, wherever town we were in, I would see the psychiatrist and I would get some pills because, you know, I'm nervous and it's tough with these kids because now I'm starting to produce kids. You know, it didn't matter what I took to prevent them. I got them. I was pregnant almost all the time. I swear to God. This is terrible to say, but I could wash his dirty underwear and get pregnant. I mean, it was just, I was constantly pregnant. I think I was pregnant for 15 years straight. Um, unfortunately, I didn't have all of those children. God knew what he was doing because 
This is not necessarily a secret, but I get a lot of horrified looks. I don't like kids. I am so self-centered to the core. You can't be that way if you have children in your life or children around you. You have to really think about them. And I, even today, I'm, I would just as soon be left far, far away from, from kids. A couple of minutes, you know, they're cute, but take care of them. And I'm, I have seven grandkids. I am not the normal grandmother. Um, I love my children today because they're grown and gone. I know, that's bad. That makes me really bad. <clears throat> anyway, um, down in Virginia, uh, the last time I tried to um, uh, get my way, this is, this is kind of an example of how I try to get my way, and then I'll, because there's so much in sobriety I want to talk about. Um, my husband would go out to see a lot and be gone for very long periods of time, and then come in and be home for a couple of months and then be gone and then home for a couple of weeks and be gone and that type of thing. And I'm, you know, I'm just sick and tired of being down in Virginia with the y'alls and um, the hillbillies that live next door and the, and the uh, uh, people knocking on my door wanting to save my soul. Uh, I couldn't stand it anymore. I wanted him to stay put. So I decided to have a nervous breakdown. I don't know if anybody has ever planned a nervous breakdown, but I plan my nervous breakdowns from time to time. And uh, this plan was uh, to get him to stay home so they wouldn't send him out. Well, it worked just fine. He, they took me to the what I thought was going to be the doctor's office, but where they took me was the third floor with bars on the windows and um, left me there. He did stay. But that was the last place that I had shock treatment. I had uh, four sessions of shock treatment, um, which back then they used to do all the time. Um, and uh, it was an interesting place. I was diagnosed there uh, with schizophrenia and uh, put on stelazine, told I was going to be on that, have to be on that drug or drugs like it for the rest of my life. Now, what they saw was not somebody with schizophrenia. What they saw was some uh, somebody like me who would get very mad and be very violent. If I didn't get my way, I threw a temper, temper tantrum, unlike uh, what they normally see normal people do. Uh, I would even today when I get full of that rage, the only thing that makes me feel good is if something breaks. And it used to be faces, you know, lamps, furniture, uh, anything. Uh, I would go absolutely, totally berserk. And then they uh, would put me in a straitjacket, give me some pills, uh, and calm me down. And as soon as I'd come to and I'd behave and go into group and somebody would uh, uh, piss me off and I'd start all over again. Uh, the shock treatment was supposed to help. But what helped was I learned how to uh, just conform, to get out. And I knew how to do that well. I would just conform to what I was supposed to be until I could escape. I also got him out of the military because of doing something like that. And he was a good Nebraska boy, so we moved to Nebraska. That's, you know, perfect. We'll go to Nebraska. Uh, I, I had never been there. I knew that his father was a cattle rancher, which I had in my head like Dallas. <laughs> uh, I had no clue. It was a feedlot. <laughs> His father used to say, that's the smell of money, honey, you know. 
it was just <laughs> awful. I mean, I was devastated. Uh, and I couldn't stand living on the farm. It was just more than I could handle. So I got a job in town, bartending. Uh, I would drink bartending um, uh, white Russians because it looked like uh, coffee with cream in it. And I would suck on those all day long. It got me through living out there on the farm. And then we we had to move north because I couldn't stand uh, being around his family at all. So we moved north of Omaha. And uh, that's where things really got bizarre. Um, now here it's the um, uh, mid-70s. And uh, I am so far away from my family. And now we've distanced ourselves somewhat from his family. His drinking, he's the falling down, falling down type of drunk, the type that would lose his car, um, go to stop and have one drink after work and then close the bar down. And I would be the type that would sit at home, my glass of scotch, watching the ice cubes, plotting his death. I'm the type of drunk that when he would come home and pass out at the top of the stairs, uh, I would not pick him up and bring him to bed. I would take him by the feet and drag him down the stairs. One at a time, watching his head hit the stairs. Till he got to the bottom. And then I would leave him and go to bed. Um, I'm even the type of drunk that if the kids were getting on my nerves, I would sit with that glass and I would plot their death, too. Would be an accident, of course. They would all be in the car with him, and the brakes would go coming down one of those hills. And they would all die, and I would be that widow that everybody would feel bad for. Lost the entire family. That's how I would think. Um, I was still taking tranquilizers, still drinking, um, and, and I, I should have been a chemist. I think most of us should have been chemists, you know, because you know how to balance that stuff. When I was a teenager, um, I don't even know what kind of drugs I took because in the 50s, they weren't all over the place, but uh, they were there. And people would say, here, take this. I'd say, okay, I'd take it. Never asked what it was or what it would do. I just would know by the what it looked like. If it did anything for me, I'd do it again. If it didn't, I wouldn't. And that's the same way with all the medication the doctors would give me. Depending on the color and the dosage would determine how much I would take and whether I would take it again. Mixing it with the scotch was very important. Um, because my ex-husband was such a fallen down drunk, there was total chaos in my, in my family, total chaos all the time. I'm a very violent, angry, drunk, even when I'm sober. I have a very hot Irish temper, and um, he irritated me on a regular basis, so it was absolutely stark raving mad in my household. The last time I threw him out with his matching set of green luggage, uh, he went to the pastor of our church, and um, they tried to uh, get me to come in and promise that I would not divorce him if he would go into treatment for his drinking. Now, when he went into treatment for his drinking and... Um, uh, 1975, February of 1975, they also strongly suggested that I go to Al-Anon. Now, I know that there, there are probably some Al-Anons here. So, remember, this is my perception and my story, and I love you to death today. But back then, 
Uh, I went to your Al-Anon meeting, and I saw a bunch of wimps. All they needed to do was to tell their spouses to shape up or ship out, you know. I certainly didn't need to be there, but obviously they needed me to be there to help them. <laughs> so um, I went to their meetings. And in November of 75, they started to say to me, Jean, there's something different about you. There's something just a little bit different. Why don't you go across the hall to that AA meeting? I was very insulted. I had been running that meeting. It was running slick, smooth. Why would they want me to leave? Couldn't understand it. So I went across the hall to that meeting. And um, it's a bunch of old men in their 40s, uh, early 50s. God help me. And um, it was a very small little group of uh, guys, no women, just guys. And I didn't relate to anything. I hadn't lost my home. I hadn't lost my car. I hadn't lost my family. I hadn't lost my job. Matter of fact, uh, moving to Nebraska after uh, uh, when we moved up to uh, north of Omaha, I redid my resume again, said I had nothing but years and years of management experience. So I got a job with uh, a company with in management and kept moving from company to company because, you know, eventually they ask you to produce, you know, you have to keep moving. Um, I didn't really belong, and I went back and reported that to the Alanons, and they said two things to me. One, control, try controlling your drinking, Gene. Well, it's coming up on the holidays, but okay. And two, go back and listen to the feelings behind the stories. I said, okay. I had to wait a week because, God forbid, I should go to another AA meeting. I had to go to that one just once a week. And I tried some controlled drinking. And I controlled it just fine. Instead of having two or three drinks and stop, I would have one drink and stop. And I would do that four or five, six times a day. But I would walk away after one drink. So I would say to them, yeah, I had, I had only one drink. I'm controlling it. Lying to myself the whole time. I don't know about you, but... If I lie or tell you a story uh, more than twice, it's real. You ever done that? It becomes real and it really happened or it really is true. And that's the way I was and sometimes can be that way today. Thank God I've got people to call me on it. Anyway, I went back to that meeting and I heard the feelings behind their stories. I heard about the emptiness that they felt, the, where they didn't really belong, that um, they felt less than, not a part of anything, and how alcohol helped connect them. And it, it was their solution, not their problem. And their problem eventually turned on them. And now, in Alcoholics Anonymous, they don't have to live like that anymore. Well, I cried for the next three months at every meeting I went to, not because I was alcoholic, but because I was alcoholic. You understand what I'm saying? I didn't want to be alcoholic, and I related. I thought, oh, my God, I'm alcoholic. I mean, I just fell apart. I didn't stop drinking until January. Couldn't. It was a holiday. <laughs> but I kept going, and I kept going to some Al-Anon meetings, but little by little, they weaned me off of that. They were they were very kind and loving, uh, but very firm, you know. You need to go to more. Don't come here. Go over there. 
Um, anyway, so that's some in January 17th of 1976 is when I took my last drink. Now, this is where my life really started to change. Because I wasn't alcoholic like you, but I was alcoholic. I was, therefore, a little different. Now, um, my ex-husband's also going to AA, but he's he's having trouble staying sober. Six months, nine months, he's drinking again. And then he gets sober six months, nine months. I read that big book, and I understood it completely and totally. So, um, because I was smarter than most people that went to those meetings, I didn't need a sponsor. I didn't need to work the steps. I didn't need to make commitments or have home groups or do any of those things real alcoholics have. I'm kind of not a fake alcoholic, but I'm not a real alcoholic. And that's the way it was for me for the next six and a half years. And I would go to one or two meetings a week because you needed me, not because I needed you. I had that attitude. I did not change my lifestyle at all. I still had a fully stocked liquor cabinet at home. I still had uh, parties and entertained all the important people in the in the neighborhood and in the city that... Uh, I had hooked up with because it was still so important for me to be somebody. Um, I had new cars. We had a new home. We had swimming pool in the backyard. Um, everything looked good on the outside. The inside of the house, as well as the inside of me, was getting blacker. Um, it's falling apart. Uh, my husband at the time... Like I said, couldn't stay sober. The kids are uh, becoming uh, total, uh, creating total havoc, uh, being brought home by the police at all hours of the night, and um, drinking themselves, you know, getting into trouble. They're teenagers, and it just is getting crazy. I'm not telling anybody what's going on because it's nobody's business, absolutely nobody's business. Some of my family had uh, moved out, out there from New York, and uh, I wasn't even sharing with them that we're on the verge of bankruptcy, that uh, the kids are constantly in trouble at school and being brought home by the police, that my ex-husband and I are fighting uh, something terrible. Uh, he would he would come in with flowers into the house, and he would say to me at, while I'm in the kitchen fixing supper, uh, I brought these flowers for you. I love you. And I would grunt. And he'd look and say, well, aren't you going to say it back? I said, well, did you ask me a question or just did you make a statement? He said, well, when I say I love you, you're supposed to say I love you back. And I would get crazy, absolutely crazy, and say, if I didn't love you, I wouldn't be cooking your meals. I wouldn't be cleaning your house or taking, doing your laundry, raising your children. My actions tell you that I love you. And I'd slam the pot down. You know, it's that's the kind of relationship we had at home. But you invite people over. We're just lovey-dovey wonderful. You know, it's important that you thought everything was great. It was an image to uphold that I had. Well, in in uh, January, February, March, somewhere around there, um, finally had some social workers and police come to the house. We had found out, and they had to share with me that my... Uh, one of the reasons that my ex-husband was having such difficulty uh, staying sober was because he had been sexually abusing his children. And I don't know what that does for you, but that, talk about rage. I was just absolutely dumbfounded and full of rage. I didn't know which end was up or down. And if you don't like authority, 
Let me tell you, I hated authority, but now I somebody else was in charge of my life. And in the um, back in '82, uh, they for some reason I heard whether they said this or not, I heard that it was partially my fault. I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing, and that enraged me. Everybody has to go to counseling. Uh, a lot of different types of counseling. The whole family has to work together. And they're constantly saying, you have to accept it is partly your fault. And I'm saying, no, I will never, never accept that. He's in and out. The kids are bouncing off walls. <sighs> Sometime in April or May, I don't have any idea. Because I'm not paying attention to time. I'm not talking to anybody other than counselors and kids. I came home from a Saturday morning meeting where I had chaired that meeting because I never went to meetings I didn't take hostage. And I took that hostage for two years. I chaired that Saturday morning meeting. And I healed everybody in that room and came directly home, walked in that front door, turned left, went to that liquor cabinet. Suddenly my mind is saying to me, two or three drinks, Jesus, just two or three drinks, and you'll be able to sleep, you'll be able to deal with all of this that's going on, just two or three drinks. So I took that half-gallon scotch out of that cabinet, went to that back porch and sat there with this god-awful Tupperware iced tea glass. Can't stand Tupperware glasses today, but that's what I took down and started to drink. No thought whatsoever about what was going on. I just knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that I could not live anymore the way I was living. My children came out one at a time and said, uh, we're going, you know, shopping or we're going to the show or I'm going to Tommy's or something like that. It's fine. Bye. My youngest, who was 11 at the time, came out and came up to me. He said, won't that stuff kill you, Mom? I said, yeah, I hope it does. I just told my 11-year-old son that I didn't care about him or anybody else. I just wanted to die. He left. And I sat there and drank half of that. Now, that's a quart of scotch, right? You drink that in a four-hour period. That should do right by you. It should just calm everything down and make everything, the whole world, right. Nothing happened. Nothing. The mind was louder, and there were more people up there talking. That black hole was bigger and deeper and darker. It was at that moment I actually, totally, completely took the first step. Now, I knew from going to AA all that time and sponsoring thousands of women, uh, I should call somebody right then and there, but I had things to do first. If the liquor wasn't going to work, maybe his death would. So I went and got the rifle, got the ammo. Drove clear across town, found him, and started shooting. Thank God he moved. 
So I killed the car instead. <laughs> then I called another AA member. Then I went to meetings. And I started going to a meeting every single day, sometimes twice a day. But I still didn't believe I was alcoholic like you. And the old timers, the annoying, rotten old timers. Did you get a sponsor? Did you get a sponsor? No, I didn't get a sponsor. They just harass the hell out of you. I think that's why I like newcomer abuse today. <laughs> um, eventually, that uh, fall, uh, the family said to me, "Mom, you you got to you've got to shape up or ship out. We're all getting okay, and you're not okay." I mean, I would go to these counseling meetings and all these other group therapy things, and I would rant and rave. And I would go to the clubhouse and sit there and rant and rave my sad story. And they family finally got together and said, you've got to either change or you got to go. I left. I, I packed my bag, and I left. I left my children with him. That's how sick I was, how self-centered and self-consumed I was with my pain. Nobody understands me. Now, I have family in town. I had friends in town. I had uh, AA people I knew uh, liked me because they said hi to me. But I thought I had no place to go. No place to go. And for three months, I lived underneath the bridge, downtown Omaha with the bums not a bad place, but it's not a good place. I had gone from, when I quit drinking in um, 76, uh, I went from uh, uh, 95 pounds to 185 pounds. I ate my way through that stark raving sobriety period. And when all of this came down, I lost weight and I was back down to, I don't know, like 90 pounds. I mean, I was nothing. And um, all of my clothes were, you know, size 16 and 18. It was, you know, really big and baggy, and that was not the style anymore. But um, that's what I was walking around with. So I really looked like an old bag lady down there. I fit. But every day I would go to the clubhouse. Every day I would go up there, and I couldn't work, couldn't function. I got a job in a delicatessen, and all I had to do was take drink orders. Do you want pop, or do you want, that's what they say in the Midwest, pop? Um or coffee, and then I was supposed to turn around, get it, and give it to them, and then they'd move down to the next one. By the, they'd say, okay, I want a Coke, and I'd turn around, and I'd forget what they said to me. Now, my pride wouldn't allow me to turn around and say, what did you say? I would just start to cry. I lasted one day, because all I did was cry. So I couldn't work. Could not work. During that six a year period that I was stark raving sober, uh, I lost a very good job with a company that I was vice president in charge of sales uh, because of my attitude. Can you imagine getting fired because of your attitude? So I went to work as a counselor in a treatment center. And that's where I was working when all of this uh, incest stuff came about. And uh, I wasn't telling them at work what was going on. Hadn't told my family. Wasn't telling anybody. And I got fired because of my attitude in the treatment center. Now, you got to be really pretty bad to get fired from a treatment center. 
back then. So I have no job and I'm not capable of working. I just cannot function to save my soul. So I've decided sponsorship won't work for me. AA won't work for me. Um, the only thing left for me is death again. So I set out to kill myself. And I tried three times in one week before I surrendered. Uh, let me tell you about the last time. Because the first two times had something to do with me hurting me. And as bad as I felt about me, I still liked me. Um, I decided I'd let you kill me. I was going to run out in the middle of the very busy street and um, let you hit me, run over me. And I did that. I ran out in the middle of this very busy street in Omaha, and the car came to a screeching halt, stopped right in front of me. An AA member jumps out, grabs me, throws me back into that car, and whisks me around the corner of the clubhouse. And these old-timers just were relentless. They wouldn't leave me alone until I agreed to go into treatment because they said my problem was my alcoholism, not that I was crazy. And the only treatment center really around was the one I worked in. Where am I, Gary? Okay. Well, I thought maybe time-wise. Um, I'm fine? Okay. Okay. Anyway, so they, they put me in the treatment center uh, that I used to work at. That's where I met Becky, by the way. Um, I was in there because I was stark raving sober. And um, uh, Becky was just going to become stark raving sober. Uh, so... Uh, I knew everything there was to know about almost all of those counselors. So I was very dangerous. And frequently in group I would say things, you know, don't don't point that finger at me. Don't talk to those people about that. How about you? I'd tell stories on them. Uh they would never go one to one with me. Uh I mean I was so full of anger. Uh it was a thirty day program and I was there for sixty days. And then I was asked to go to a uh, halfway house in uh, in Iowa. And I lasted uh, maybe two weeks in that halfway house, and I couldn't stand it. I had to come back and take care of business. And when I came back, and I sat down and I talked to some of the old-timers about why they felt it necessary for me to have a sponsor. And after about three hours of them explaining to me how retarded my mind is and how dangerous it is. My perception of reality is completely and totally different from reality. I agree. And I got a woman to sponsor me. I asked her to sponsor me, this woman that I had known, because I'd gotten involved in service work. This is the way I used to get involved in service work. I wouldn't commit. God forbid I'd commit because something better might come along. Uh, if I was there, I'd help. And she was always there. She was involved in service work everywhere. But the one thing she had going for her was that laugh from inside. I hadn't laughed from the inside out, and I couldn't ever remember. And that's what I wanted to learn how to do. And I thought she'd be kind of fun, because she laughed all the time. Well, let me tell you, she doesn't laugh all the time. But my life has changed. Thank God it has changed. Uh, the last 18 years have been, or 17 years have been, absolutely breathtaking. 
One of the first things she made me do was to get a job and get an apartment. Now, I would start, I started off saying, well, how do you do that? You know, you have to have some place to be grounded before you can get a job. And you can't get a job unless you're someplace grounded. It was one of those catch-22s. But I did. She just said, do it. And I did. Learning how self-centered I was, uh, and that I was truly not a victim, but a volunteer all those years, was one of the most painful things I ever, ever had to go through. But it has allowed me to walk through some really devastating things that life has handed me in the last 17 years. Uh, you know, life throws crap balls. And if you're moving, you're going to, most of those crap balls are going to miss you. If you're standing still, you're going to get hit with every single one. So I learned to keep moving. In Alcoholics Anonymous, that's easy to do. You can get involved in helping others until you're blue in the face. You can always keep moving. But those crap balls occasionally are going to hit you because that's life. The nice thing about Alcoholics Anonymous, especially sponsorship, is when you get hit with one of those crap balls, you come to a meeting or you go to your sponsor, and they'll show you how to walk around with it crap all over your face with dignity, or they'll help wash it off. You're never going to be stuck out there sitting in a pile, trust me. When I was about uh, five years sober, um, I was Mrs. A&A. I had uh, gotten involved with everything. I was going to a meeting every day, maybe even more, on a regular basis. Um, when I was a, uh, a year sober, um, I got custody of my children again because it happened again. And I wasn't ready for that. But as Peggy would say, God thinks you're ready. So I had those kids. And I was uh, dragging them with me to meetings, open meetings, and they went to Alateen. And, uh, I mean, we were the big AA family, you know. Um, and I uh, was archivist for Area 42, and I was on the uh, central office committee, and I was in general service and uh, home group and sponsored you know, 25 women, I was just everywhere, just wonderful. And Peggy finally said to me, you have to learn the difference between action and activity, and it's time. And I didn't understand what she was talking about. You can stay sober for a long period of time being involved in a lot of activity, but unless you get involved in some action uh, with this program, with the principles in this program, so it becomes a way of life. Eventually you become stark, red, and sober again. And I fought that tooth and nail. I mean, I really fought it tooth and nail. Because I was so afraid to give up what it was that I was doing because I was getting such good feelings. You know, all those warm fuzzies. My ego was being fed big time. I was somebody. And I just knew that if I didn't keep doing that, I would then be nobody. God always helps sponsors. So anytime your sponsor suggests anything to you and you choose not to do it, God's going to help. You're eventually going to do exactly what your sponsor wants you to do anyway. 
1985, um, uh, I was told to go for a physical, and I hadn't been for a physical for 10 years. And uh, finally, Peggy said, if, if you don't go, I cannot sponsor you anymore. So I went. Thank God I went because I, they found that I had cancer. And uh, so from February to, uh, no, this is 84, from February to August, they tried radiation, chemotherapy. Um, and in August, I started operations. But let me tell you what those drugs and the operations do to you. It makes you slow way down. You cannot go to two meetings a day. You cannot run around and do all of that uh, activity. You have to give things up. You can't be running around town picking up 47 women and cramming them in the car and running off to a meeting and going to this conference and that conference. You have to stand still long enough for people to get to know you and you to get to know them. It was a very scary time for me. But it was a wonderful time because it really made me stand still long enough to know that I didn't have to live and I didn't like I was living and I didn't have to exist. I could really become part of life. I also uh, had gotten involved in a relationship that, just because we sober up doesn't mean that we become wonderful, but I'd gotten involved in a relationship that was violent. And I was afraid to get out of it. I was able during that time to walk away from that relationship with this fear that I was going to be alone the rest of my life. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I know about women. There is a period of time in our lives that we're so afraid we're going to be alone the rest of our life and not be able to, to take care of ourselves. And that's what we need men in our lives for. And I was told over and over and over again, you just get okay with being alone the rest of your life and celibate too. And God will give you whatever gifts you deserve when it's time. So that's when I started um, uh, whining and crying and, and uh, trying to act as if and walk through that. One, one thing after another, one crap ball after another started to come my way. I was um, mugged and robbed. Uh, I lost one job after another. But with each thing that happened, something better came along. Each job that I lost, I got a better job. When I was uh, mugged and, and robbed uh, of all of my savings, I was transporting it to the bank. Uh, that was my vacation money. And uh, then I lost my job. And I got a better job, made much more money quicker, got to go on my vacation. A uh, bunch of FAA people went down to Hawaii, and that was... Uh, unbelievable for me. In uh, 1989, uh, somebody broke into my house in the middle of the night and beat me and raped me. Now, if you can think back about being a newcomer, it was the same type of feeling I had when I was a newcomer. I didn't want to be alone, but I didn't want anybody around me. I wanted somebody to hold me, but I didn't want anybody to touch me. I wanted to have people talk to me, but I wanted to be uh, left alone 
in silence. The only thing I knew to do was to isolate. Just like when you're early sober, you just, you know, put this wall around you. Thank God for sponsorship. I had to do what I had said I was going to do. I learned about integrity. Do what you say you're going to do when you say you're going to do it. And I had promised that night to go support one of the girls I sponsored someplace where she was going to be her first open talk. And I did not want to go. But I went because my sponsor told me to. And I let you hug me and hold me. And you had no idea what was going on. I went to um victims uh group because I was told to go. I only went twice because the victims group, they were still living in the problem, still angry, still frightened. For two years they were going, some of them. I didn't want to live like that. That's not living. I wanted to live. And in Alcoholics Anonymous, I learned how to do that by sharing with you uh, my fears at the time and acting better than I felt and reaching out and helping you get through your difficulties. I, I found that I was no longer angry. I was no longer fearful. I'm a little more cautious than I was, but I'm not fearful. I don't live in fear. I'm not afraid to live by myself. By that time, I was living by myself. I had no vehicle uh, when I sobered up. And you know how we are in Alcoholics Anonymous. We either come with uh, a vehicle that has bourbon bumps all over it or we have no vehicle. Well, I had no vehicle. I was given a car, but it didn't have an engine. Somebody else gave me an engine. And then somebody else taught me how to put it in. And I spent months learning how to put an engine in this in this Monte Carlo. But it was truly my AA car because it got me around to the meetings and, and uh, to the conferences and picked up, you know, 12-step calls. And uh, I saved up enough money with one job getting better than the next and eventually had enough money uh, in 1990 to buy a brand-new car. Uh, let me tell you that that feeling was like um, better than when I had my first child. It was like I'm I'm really living today. I'm I'm got something of my own. And the next thing I was going to save up for was a house, so I was stashing money away for that. When this silly little man came up to me in a meeting. And he said, would you go out with me? And I said, forget it. Take, take a hike. Get lost. I'm not interested in, in dating you or anybody else. And, and uh, every meeting he would come up and say, would you go out with me? And I'd say, no, take a hike. And he started sending me flowers every week to the house. Then he would endear himself to my sister pigeons and my sponsor. And um, uh, eventually, with them all saying, go out with him. He's a nice guy. He's a nice guy. Four months later, I said, okay, I'll go out. A year later, we were married. Um, it's a wonderful partner. He's truly a partner. He's not just my husband. He's my partner. We share so much. We share an absolute love for Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I'm sober considerably longer than him. And, and uh, living with a newcomer sometimes is difficult. 
but I'm helping them. <laughs> That's how we got from uh, Nebraska up to Michigan. He had four, four years before he retired, and they worked for the government, and in their wisdom, decided to send him north. Uh, and so he'll be eligible to retire this year. But it was really scary to go to Michigan because you sober up in a place, and that's your family. That's your support. And, God, you just don't want to, you know, leave. But I saw it as an adventure, ah, an absolute total adventure. I love to travel, absolutely adore to travel. And uh, I meet people all over the place. And why not go to Michigan for four years? You get to meet people. It's exciting, da-da-da-da-da. But I am not going to sponsor anybody while I'm there. I sponsor a lot of women already, some of which, I'll, you know, I sponsor out of state, and I'll keep them. They've been around a long time, but I'm not sponsoring anybody in Michigan. I wasn't there two weeks, and I had two people ask me to sponsor them. And it just, you know, because you can't say no, but I was going to try to be anonymous. Now, you can't be anonymous if you go to 90 meetings in 90 days. Now, I was 15 years sober, and I went to 90 meetings in 90 days because it was a new place. I went to the district meetings to see if I could be of help, of service at the district meetings so I could find out what's going on in that area. And went to the area meeting to see if I could be of service there because that's what I was taught. And because of that, I've never been uh, lonely longer than the first two weeks I lived in Michigan. So I know today from that experience, it doesn't matter where I live. I'll be a part of Alcoholics Anonymous no matter where I am. My my children all grew up and um, eventually, you know, moved out. But there was a lot of anger there, a lot of anger, because it was my fault the family broke up. I mean, that's the way kids think. And it took a lot of years before they really looked at the reality of it. And there were several years where my youngest didn't talk to me at all. But uh, today we have an absolutely wonderful relationship. Uh, my daughter said to me one time, you know, talking to you, Mom, is, is sometimes it's like talking to uh, my best friend, sometimes it's like talking to my sponsor, and sometimes it's like talking to my mom. It w- that was nice, you know, two adults talking to each other. Like I said earlier, I have seven grandchildren, and I don't get to see them. But... I make it a point because of um, where I am today to go and see them from time to time. Let me just share this one little, uh, two little stories with you, and then I'll shut up because I'm pretty close here. One of my jobs that I got as soon as I got out of high school was as a uh, stewardess, flight attendant. Now, back then, uh, all I ever wanted to do all of my life was to travel. And that was a means for me to travel. So I, I went to work for one of the airlines. But also back then, you had to be single. And you certainly couldn't be pregnant. And because those two things happened to me, I was let go. I worked on the ground for a while, but um, even then, that uh, that was too much. So my dream job and my thoughts of travel were going to be a dead issue, never to happen again. Because of Alcoholics Anonymous, I've gotten to travel all over the place. 
I haven't been to Europe yet, but I've, you know, gone down to Mexico and up to Canada and all across the United States, either conferences or the internationals, um, uh, sober cruises, uh, just vacation, visiting somebody that I had met someplace, uh, was asked to come share at an uh, anniversary in NASA. I mean, you know, and they pay your way to go to someplace like that. It was just one of my dreams coming true. I even got to go to Disneyland, which I thought that would never be. I mean, I cried the first hour I was there because it was a big deal to me. Ever since Disneyland opened up someplace, I always fantasized about going but never thought I'd go. When I moved to Michigan, one of the girls I sponsored was a flight attendant. And she said, Jean, they're hiring. Why don't you put your application in? So they're not going to hire somebody my age, certainly not a grandmother. They're just not going to do that anymore. So they'll try it anyway. An hour after I got back from the interview, they hired me. And that's what I've been doing the last three and a half years. I'm I'm flying again. And I get some travel benefits, which makes it even nicer. Anything is possible in Alcoholics Anonymous. Anything is possible. And if you really, really want to know the secret to make anything possible is like the story that my sponsor likes to tell about a man walking on the beach and he off in the distance he sees another man throwing something into the water and as he gets closer he notices that all of these starfish have washed up on the beach because of the storm and he gets closer to the man and he sees the man picking up the starfish one at a time and throwing them into the water because you know starfish can't live out of the water. And as he gets close to the man, he, he said, what are you doing? And the man said, I'm returning the starfish to the water so that they may live. The guy said, but there's thousands and thousands and thousands of them. What difference could you possibly make? The man picked up one starfish and said, all the difference to the world to this one. And it's only because sponsorship, working with other people, seeing what I can do to be of service to you, the gifts that I've gotten have come directly because of that. And for that, I'm immensely grateful. And I will never be able to pay you back for that. And I truly appreciate you all coming to the Early Bird Conference. And I swear to you, you're going to have nothing but a great time laughing and scratching, hugging the whole weekend. Because I know it can't be any other way at any any conference. We're all together. Thanks. Yeah.